Welcome to Night and Tales. This podcast was created during the International Year of the Nurse and Nurse Midwife. And what a year that was. This podcast is dedicated to telling stories of nurses from across our profession. Our goal is to introduce you to the seemingly infinite possibilities in nursing and encourage you to find your true passion within this work. I'm your host, Jessica Spruitt, and I'm so glad you're here. Hi, thanks for joining us for another episode of Night and Tales. I'm excited you guys are here, and I'm excited also to welcome our guest today. I have Belinda Aberly, and she is joining us today to talk about kind of the tip of the iceberg when we think about community and public health. Um, Belinda has her Master's of Science in Nursing in Community and Public Health Nursing, and is also board certified as a Public Health Nurse Advanced. And so she's going to tell us about her career trajectory. I think you'll be really interested to hear about the variety of things that she's done within this specialty of nursing. Um, and to help you think about what might be available to you. So Belinda, thanks so much for taking your time and spending this, you know, this time with us as an opportunity to share what you've done. Thanks so much, Jessica, for having me. Um, what an exciting time to be able to share our passions for nursing. Um, so many reasons to be able to, to want to do that. Um, it's why I'm teaching now, to be able to take what I love and pass it on. So this is a great way to, to do that besides lecturing and planning classes and all that good stuff. So, <laughs> um, a little bit about me. I uh, graduated in a uh, long time ago from Boston University with a bachelor's in nursing. And I sought that out because at the time in the early 80s, it was already being talked about as the minimal degree. And I'm just really excited to be in a school that had a gradu great graduate program and um, a really great BSN program. Um, I went from there into the typical at the time med surge for about a year and loved it. Went to, did ICU for a little over a year and also loved that. I loved the technology. Um, I love the pace. But I, what I didn't love about ICU that was just me was I felt like I didn't have time to kind of be creative and adaptive and those are the parts of my personality that were like not that task oriented if you're super task oriented ICU is perfect for you if you if you love the technology but you don't love that tasky day long um, work then you move into other directions and there's so many other directions to go so I tried home care um, the next you know just a year and a half after and part of it was because I moved and I had to you know, get a new job because of the move um, with my husband's, because of my husband's job at the time. And so um, I was just excited to try something new and fell in love with home health care. Um, it has evolved over the, these last 30 years so much and to, to the point now where it is still considered a career in, in part of community health, but it, so much of what happens in community health now, it, I mean, in home care now is really acute care mm -hmm. because patients are only given a short time um, by their any insurance insurance provider to have a nurse or or you know multiple dis multiple multiple disciplinary team visit them at home and so you're seeing them you know right out of an acute care situation and they're still pretty sick and um, your skills your assessment skills your independence of practice just really has to be um, great. And, and so if those are things that you can imagine yourself enjoying, um, just being adaptive and creative and, and being in people's homes in their space and 
enjoying getting to know them um, or not, uh, <laughs> you will enjoy the, that really just an amazing uh, part of nursing, doing home health care. Um, from there, I took a couple breaks and went back to um, the hospital. And what I did was uh, a little bit of med surge. And then um, I ended up doing a little bit of outpatient surgery, which also I found kind of a nice break from home care and um, a really nice, easy nursing uh, job. <laughs> Making your patients happy going to surgery and then making them happy on their way out the door was, was what I call that. Um, so if you need a break from something more intense, good place to go. Um, <laughs> then I tried hospice back and forth a little bit when I was living in West Michigan and um, ended up doing that full time for a couple of years and loved that. Found it a very sacred way to use who I am as a nurse and my skills. Um, also, just a lot of independence, a lot of teamwork, really wonderful teamwork happens with hospice. Um, and it's, as I said, sacred. To me, it's about it's as sacred as that experience of being with someone when a new baby is born, to be with a family um, when their loved one is dying and to be with that dying person and help them have the best experience the most peaceful experience they can is just um, kind of the tip of the iceberg in terms of experiences and sacred life work as far as I'm concerned. So I want to encourage you to look into that um, as an option and also a really nice flexible option. I'd love to talk more about that. Um, the next thing I did was when I was in graduate school, because I decided I really wanted to teach, I went back to school late in life and um, decided to move from the Western, I was commuting from West Michigan to graduate school and decided I really wanted to be at U of M for a while and just get into the, all the things that are available that I couldn't do when I was commuting. So I got a job um, as a chronic disease manager in, in a family medicine practice. It was actually a U of M family medicine um, residency, you know, practice with lots of residents running around and really a cool place to be in all those ways. But my job was very unique in that it was part of a demonstration project that started about eight years ago to really display the value of RNs, ESNs, in primary care. And now there are 400 practices around the state who have been through the demonstration project and have continued to utilize RNs in that way. Um, I had a caseload of about 70 patients and just got to take care of them, tried to keep them out of the hospital. And the value of what I was able to do to, um, for that practice um, from a financial standpoint, I mean, they used to joke about how, you know, if I just kept two people out of the hospital, you know, a month <laughs> from a readmission and all the costs that that entails for U of M, that, um, you know, that my, I made my salary. So that, that was fulfilling in lots of ways. Not that I paid that much attention to the finances, but I really did enjoy that. Take, sort of taking everything I knew from home care and about what it's like for people to, to the barriers that they have when they get home from an acute care situation and then to care for themselves and adapt to the changes, et cetera. I took that knowledge into this 
primary care setting where then I was able to have my own caseload and help help those people who were often, they, they were all multiple chronic disease, um, people, patients with multiple chronic diseases and um, really mostly high utilizers of the hospital where we were trying to have them succeed in being home and, and being safe without um, multiple hospitalizations. So and readmissions. That, that highlights the role of nursing so well. You know, you have that really holistic yeah. approach, thinking about what's happening to them in their homes, all of the barriers they need to overcome to safely manage their chronic illnesses, but yet you're utilizing all of your knowledge of pathophysiology and pharmacology and what it takes to care for disease processes too. That sounds like just such a comprehensive model of what it means to be a nurse, but in a non-traditional yeah. You know, in a way that you yeah. were in their home, you weren't at their bedside, but you were their partner in care, it sounds like. Right. It's really a part of the team now in the best practices of primary care that are looking at the role of a chronic disease manager and saying, you know, how, you know, we have this team, we have a provider, nurse practitioner, PA, physician, mm -hmm. and then we have a team of other people. And many times... Um, really good primary care practices are saying this is a great addition to have a chronic disease manager or sometimes it's called a care navigator, care manager, um, and it's a great role to, that I loved and would have kept going except that I really wanted to go into teaching. So sure. um, here I am at Wayne State. Um, I'm just excited about where I am now. I, I also did want to mention that um, throughout my career, I've enjoyed, and Jessica, interrupt me again if you need to, um, I've enjoyed volunteering with lots of different kinds of, um, I guess I would call it people who are experiencing social determinants of health issues. So I've been on mission trips in other countries. Um, I've just paid attention to what's going on global health-wise. Um, and then, of course, in graduate school, it became really important to me to pay attention because I was really looking at public health, and you can't look at public health without looking at global issues. Mm -hmm. um, and so I took some of that mission trip passion and a lot of those other things and just have continued to, that, to have that as a passion to really understand um, global health and um, hopefully pass that passion on. So I had the opportunity right after I graduated from grad school to, um, I just was looking at the CDC website about what was going on in, in West Africa um, at, with the Ebola crisis and saw that they were signing people up. So I applied and um, was accepted. They were only taking people that were willing to do a six week commitment um, CDC was paying a partner organization called Partners in Health that does all kinds of really great um, community health around the world, mostly in Haiti and West Africa and, and a couple countries in Eastern Africa. Um, but anyway, Partners in Health trained us for a couple days in Boston and then sent us on our way. Um, they were bringing in new cohorts every week and I was there for six weeks. I took a leave of absence from my job at U of M family medicine. And it was an incredible uh, opportunity. And so what I say about that, if you don't, um, if you can't think of any questions. What I, one of the things I want to make sure students know is that if you do want to do that kind of nursing, even for short term, 
it is something to prepare for. There are some great um, ways that you can get into that field. One that I would recommend right away is to look at um, free disaster, uh, they're called, it's called basic disaster life support. And regionally, these classes are taught, um, they're free. If you look up BDLS, um, it's, they're taught by actually FEMA staff um, from the federal government regionally. And um, then you can get advanced disaster life support. They're taught to nurses and other providers. Um, I think the lowest sort of credential wise is paramedics can get that credentialing as well. And it makes sense because they get, would get very involved in disaster management. Sure. Um, and then you can, you know, do lots of things with that part of it. I did not have that certification, but I think because I had a master's in public health and also some experience um, in developing countries, that was one reason why I was accepted in the groups that went to West Africa. But um, I always recommend Peace Corps. I can't talk about that enough. It's such an amazing organization. I have many, many family members, including my son, who were Peace Corps volunteers. And um, that's a great place for nurses to try out the world of global health, too. Um, so I'm always happy to talk about that, too. Oh, I love hearing about it. I'm curious, if you don't mind, when we're thinking about global health and responding as a public health nurse to a global health crisis such as Ebola, which you did, um, what was that like? What did you spend those six weeks doing? You know, what was your work there? So when I arrived in January of 2015, not that long ago, no. um, I, um, the, the pandemic was starting to slow down a little bit. So we were all trained to be in the Ebola treatment unit, which was a very rudimentary ETU that was set up in a school um, way back in the beginning of the pandemic. And so we were all taking turns being in the full PPE for a maximum time of two hours because they made you get out of there because it was your body was about 110 degrees when you got back out. Um, and it just wasn't healthy. So there were a lot of, um, you know, shifts going on all night long, day long, um, having us go in in short shifts to take care of people um, who were actively sick with Ebola. Mm -hmm. um, I ended up doing that for a couple weeks, and then the last few weeks I helped with some field work where they were helping um, with, they had these sort of, I've forgotten now what they were called, but they were temporary ETUs for people that were suspect cases. When you say out, ETU, Belinda, what do you, emergency? Ebola treatment units, okay. yeah, so just like it sounds like, so they were intensive care for people that were actively infectious. And that's where you had to wear the full PPE and do really, really careful donning and doffing, especially because you could infect yourself very, very easily by just taking your, by getting those body fluids and splashing them in your eyes, getting it on your skin. Um, and there were people that were, you know, we had um, four pairs of gloves on, not one, not two, but four. And taking those off, there were people that had punctures of all four and, and had to go home because they had potentially exposed, been exposed and had to quarantine for three weeks and all that kind of stuff. There's actually Wayne State grad who um, was with me and, and he had, was on his second tour because he had had to go home um, because oh, of an wow. exposure. So mm -hmm. yeah, so that was, that's what the Ebola treatment units were. And then they had temporary ones out 
in outlying places also set up temporarily mm -hmm. where people were treated who were suspect cases. And until they got their lab work, they, if they were showing symptoms, they were kept there. And the same thing, we would bring them their meals. They were not necessarily very sick, but we put the full PPE on to go into the, what they called the red zone um, to care for those, those patients that we were suspicious of and, you know, waiting for them to turn positive or negative. Right. Wow. This is such, um, I'm imagining such an intense experience, you know, it was um, that balance, yeah. I think of caring for people who need your care so desperately, but also I, I imagine it would be impossible not to be concerned about your own health um, and adhering yeah. to the proper downing and doffing. And do you have um, like suggestions or feedback for people who, I mean, if we think about where we've been, right, our country has been experiencing, um, you know, our part, portion of a global pandemic with COVID-19 mm -hmm. for the past six months, at least our state. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, unfortunately, probably many nurses listening to this will find themselves in perhaps situations that feel just as intense or just as scary or intimidating are there things that you, based on your experience and your expertise in this, would suggest or things to help us stay calm or grounded when, when things get so intense? You know, that's a really good question, Jessica. I thought we had um, really good leadership and training when I, and the experience that I had, because it was so important to do that. Um, you know, we were, we were in a group, I would guess, of, you know, 30 of us in this one location, maybe more because they were staying in different housing situations. But um, we did, you know, hear from leadership just about every day to check in. How are you doing? You know, are you handling this? Are you emotionally handling this? Are you physically handling this? We don't want anybody passing out in the, when they're wearing that PPE because you're putting yourself at risk if that happens. Um, and so what I would say, the, there's so many lessons to be learned from this. I'd love to, in fact, I will pass on to you the, um, some of the blogs that some of my colleagues that were there, we, a lot of us keep in touch. And um, there have been some really beautifully written blogs about this current pandemic and sort of their reactions after, you know, when our memories come back. Mm -hmm. um, because they're, they're really pretty horrific memories. I've never seen a death rate like I had, I mean, we had at least half of our patients dying and I've never had a, seen that in my whole career. But what I would say, and in, in, to those of you who have experienced some of this pandemic, and I know some of our nursing students have mm -hmm. um, been in acute care situations during this, that getting that support and really being able to talk about what you're experiencing and reflect about it is super important every day. Um, don't know, you know, just know that you're not alone in how you're thinking and feeling and fearing and, um, you know, the anger that you're feeling if you're not get, feeling like you're, this is being handled well. Um, find really good and um, I guess I shouldn't say good because who knows what that means, but the, the, the best ways to vent um, are really professional and not on social media, but really with trusted colleagues and finding a way to, to get your, to know that you're being treated fairly and also safely and that you're caring for yourself in the middle of this kind of really intense um, 
nursing work. Um, it's super important to who you are as a person and your, your ability to, to care for people is something that I had to even pass on to my own child who has a tendency like I always have to want to be on the front line. And she just went back to school after getting a bachelor's in, in uh, international studies to be an EMT. And so she went to the front line at the beginning of the pandemic to, um, to New Orleans. And, you know, she's a little bit of a hot dog. And I was like, honey, you, there is no emergency in a pandemic. Remember that you, and this is what all of my friends said and what we said in, um, and it sounds like you don't care in an emergency room nurse might differ with this, but, but they don't because a lot of my colleagues that were known to Sierra Leone were our emergency room folks. Mm -hmm. um, that the most emergent thing is for you to be safe because you cannot safely care for anyone else if you are not safe. So it's important that you know what the recommendations are and that you care for yourself. That's one of my big recommendations. Sure. When I hear you say that, I think too, we are not even just talking about, you know, wearing your N95 and the appropriate gloves. Um, but I think caring for yourself also means at the end of that shift or that day or that assignment, um, recognizing, as you talked about, the emotional distress on top of that mental and physical exhaustion and really taking that time to care for yourself so that you can do it again the next day. I imagine um, that you had to find some coping mechanisms and some ways to, you know, you talked about, you know, venting and having conversations with trusted colleagues, but I imagine that that was pretty critical too. And when we talk about self-care. Yeah, definitely. Wow. And I think that, you know, that's one of the, one of the most rewarding things about what I did in Sierra Leone and what I like to pass on to people is how inspiring it is to know people who are doing the same good work that you know that you're doing. And so use, use that to inspire you and to, to help you with self-care. It's not that you compare yourself, but, you know, sitting down and saying, look what we just did together. Mm -hmm. um, and then finding out who else is doing this among your friends and colleagues and how they're feeling is super, super helpful. Um, I just will never forget sitting around. We had this like tiki hut in this Irish army camp that was set up just for us to stay in for that mm -hmm. time in West Africa and um, by the Irish army, because that's what they're good at in disaster management. And um, the tiki hut was where we sat and talked in between our, you know, when we got back from a shift and there were people who were serving from the World Health Organization in Geneva there were people who were with the National Health Service, you know, just prominent doctors from England um, who had done this kind of work before. A lot of people that had worked with Doctors Without Borders in a lot of different situations. Mm -hmm. And they just kept me going, hearing their stories and their love for what they do and their passion. So just remember those things when you're starting to lose it. Remember your passions and and be inspired by others as well. Right. Oh, I think that's such good advice and, and advice that truly, you know, when on the front lines, you can apply. Um, yeah. I, if you don't mind, Blend, I'd like to go back. You spoke, um, I think so passionately and so genuinely about 
the sacred space of um, hospice and what that meant to be a hospice nurse. And I'm wondering if you can just talk, you know, when we're thinking about public health nursing, community health nursing, um, what does it mean to be a hospice nurse? Um, and what is, what is a day in a, the life of a hospice nurse look like? I imagine it's highly variable. It's, it's highly variable. Um, most hospice agencies that I know of have kind of a couple different team members, um, but a regular hospice case manager who's working regularly and is not doing like contingent work, um, excuse me, will have a caseload of patients that are in the community. And by that, I mean, um, you know, they're, they're not in a facility, um, a hospice facility. And they will see those patients on a very regular basis, not every day, unless the person is really actively dying. And then you will try to see them more frequently and sometimes every day. Mm -hmm. um, but many times it's once a week in the beginning, those kinds of things. Some hospices are set up like a lot of home care agencies where there's a team of people that do the admissions. So you may, might not do that initial like three hour assessment that it usually takes. Mm -hmm. um, because there's so much to talk about and paperwork and, and coordination between yourself and the rest of the team, et cetera. Um, usually the hospice medical director sees the patient fairly early in that process too. And so you do a fair amount of coordinating with them, usually just by phone. Hey, I, you know, here's what's happening today. And the, you develop a very trusting relationship with your medical director mm -hmm. um, and usually see anywhere between I don't guess, I would say four and seven patients a day. Wow. And then usually there's some call involved. Um, it just depends on the size of the agency. Um, I was with a fairly small hospice agency in West Michigan. And we took call, I guess, once or twice a month on the weekends. And then, a, you know, one night a week, every two weeks or something like that. And, and I have to say, probably got called at least 50% of the time in the middle of the night. So it is one of those things that that's one of the downsides, but it's certainly doable. Um, you know, sometimes it was just somebody's catheter was plugged and their, their family member had not been trained to, to uh, know what to do. Usually we tried hard to, to train people to figure that part out, but um, sometimes early in the process, lots of things like that happened. But um, even that part was usually very rewarding. Mm -hmm. Get that call and get yourself out of bed and <laughs> go see a patient and know that you've made a difference for them in the middle of the night. Um, it's, it's also rewarding. So, yeah, I think of um, the role that hospice nurses play in the lives of patients and families, and really in, in some of their most challenging and saddest days. You know, I mean, those can be some of the hardest times of their lives, and yet hospice nurses can offer. Um, comfort and, you know, peace that I think it's, it is, like you say, such a rare opportunity to be able to offer that to another human. And I think it's a really beautiful thing to offer. You know, what a beautiful thing that a nurse can bring to a home, you know, mm -hmm. despite the situation that you're in. And mm -hmm. I've often seen, as you suggested, um, hospice nurses become very autonomous. As you said, you yeah. become very well trusted and are, you know, close partners with the medical director. And so in my experience, that's probably one of the roles where I see a lot of autonomy in nursing. Would you agree with that? Or do you want to speak to that? 
I would definitely agree with that, um, Jessica. I think it's one of the one of the wonderful things about it, but it is something that takes some experience. It doesn't necessarily have to be med surge. It needs to be, you know, some some experience in doing great assessments and really understanding pathologies because your patients will have lots of questions. I also did um, in my uh, the hospice I was in um, went to hospitals because we didn't have at the time. Our, the hospital system I was with didn't have hospital um, staff that was either palliative care or hospice trained. So I would see patients like in the ICU when they were making, the family wanted to make a decision or, or med surge floor. Um, and so I saw quite a few patients and that was rewarding too, to be part of that process of helping a family and a patient decide, you know, this person's had a stroke, um, they're not going to come out of this, you know, those kinds of decisions that have to be, they're really hard. Um, and now we have palliative care teams that help a little bit in most hospitals that help with that, but still hospice nurses can, can go and, and admit a patient in, a, in an acute care situation and then help with the transition to home or to a facility. Do you have, Belinda, um, because I think no matter what we do in nursing, we will find ourselves in situations where we have to have difficult conversations like that, or we have to facilitate a conversation that will lead to decision-making for families. And I'm just curious, and I know there are curriculums dedicated to this and certifications, but do you have any tips about um, if you're maybe a newer nurse or less experienced in this um, field and you have to help a family engage in a difficult conversation, is there anything you would suggest you know, a way to approach it or something that tends to work well? Oh, wow. That's a really big question, Jessica. I think one of the biggest things is to listen to people really well and validate their, their concerns, because that's one of the things that is hardest. One of the hardest things I think for us to do to be, to learn to be good listeners and to really hear what people are saying and then help them sort through the barriers that they that they're facing to making good decisions because that's often what's happening in the decision making is if you don't hear what's behind the patient even in any kind of change or decision making that they have to do um, hearing them and validating what they're saying and what is really going on behind their struggle mm -hmm. is a big one um, I remember that a lot with people because sometimes it was a bigger spiritual issue when it came to making a decision to say, you know, to start hospice. Sometimes it was, um, well, you know, hospice means you're giving up. So there, there was a lot of um, having to clarify what, that that wasn't true. But if you, if you start out with, well, that's not true, Mrs. Smith, it's not, it doesn't come, it isn't what Mrs. Smith is ready to hear. Sure. This is Mrs. Smith's belief system, and for whatever reason, it, validating their beliefs and then helping them see that there are other ways to think of this is a really, I just remember utilizing those important listening skills and important kind of conversational skills a lot. Mm -hmm. I know that was a really big question. And as I asked it, I started to feel guilty for asking that because I do know <laughs> it was, but I think you answered it really well though, Belinda. I think that you did give us something to think about and a tool 
to have in our back pocket, you know, when we find ourselves in situations such as that. So I want to thank you for answering that despite how big and perhaps vague it was. Um, and I just, it does make me think of how, you know, how well positioned when I think of the education of a nurse and our, um, you know, theoretical foundation in, um, you know, the person and, um, you know, medicine. So this whole really holistic approach, it just seems like who better to do that than a nurse. And so I would also encourage people listening to remember, um, when you find yourself in those intimidating situations, like who better to do it than you though, you know, it might be hard and you're going to have to put yourself out there and in an uncomfortable position, but who is more poised to do that than a profession like us? Right. I mean, yeah. and that's yeah. sort of what I think is so truly beautiful about this profession and what I think drives so many of us. Yes, I think that's so true, Jessica. I mean, you often do feel like you're wearing a lot of hats and you'd like to just say, you know, let me just call the social worker and talk to you about that, you know. <laughs> but there you are in that room or in that home um, and, and you have the resources within you to, to listen and to help people get to the next step in a decision make, in a, you know, in those kinds of tough situations, whether it's behavior changes or hospice decisions or, you know, caring for their family member and how and, and whether they can. Sometimes that's one of the biggest things that we did in hospice was um, helping families see that they're capable mm -hmm. of caring for their loved one in this time. And it took, you know, all my skills to say, you know, here's what you can do with your body and your, your home. And here's what isn't going to work. And here's how we can make this work. And so it was, it was a really great way to kind of use all the creative adaptive parts of your brain and your nursing knowledge at the same time. Yeah. Wow. How, um, how rewarding it must feel to empower families at such a difficult time, you know, who are yeah. in such a vulnerable space and yet you still empower them. Um, so you've described kind of the value of creativity and, you know, liking technology and tools, but using them in perhaps unconventional or less conventional ways. Are there any other things that you would say if someone really recognizes this quality about themselves or if somebody feels they have a real strength in X, Y, or Z, then maybe they should look at public health or community health nursing. What other qualities do you think would really translate well to this specialty? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I'm thinking a little bit more about my public health nurses that I know well, and I, again, haven't been directly in that field, but I now know it really well because I have um, had clinical, uh, clinical student groups at both the Oakland County Health Department and the Detroit Health Department for five years and have gotten to know the staff there really well and kind of understand that role. What I see in many of the roles there are similar um, because there are several roles, especially at the Detroit, I mean, at the Oakland County Health Department where they're doing a lot of community visits. So they have um, case managers doing both children's special health care services mm -hmm. and they carry a caseload of kind of a similar caseload size, like 60 or 70 um, kids with special needs in, the, in all over Oakland County. And they really, um, they need to have good organizational skills. I mean, it's not my top 
forte, but I know I know how to do it pretty basically, and I know how to follow some good guidelines in that way. Um, because you're you're having to prioritize and and plan your own days and um, get out of conversation so that you can get on to the next patient's house and all those kinds of things. So I would say that it you know you don't have to know all these little tiny details about yourself in nursing if you're still just starting out. But if you're, if you know that you have some good, um, you know, desires to just be that person who understands what's going on with people and can kind of coordinate things for them, those are great things. And I think the other piece really is a passion for, um, sort of the, I want here's what I want to call it, um, health determinants and what you what your role as a nurse is in in helping people um, best care for themselves and so in the hospital you are often stymied and that does not i'm not saying that isn't a great place for a lot of people but if you're frustrated in the hospital like mrs smith could did not have to have this hospitalization if someone had only taught her this or if someone had only intervened here or if she had only known how to really care for her asthma um, you know or whatever and that is driving some real frustration for you those kinds of passions will also be important um, because that's a lot of what you end up doing in, in any of these fields one of the gals that i've gotten to know well at oakland county is um, goes to homeless shelters and they have a homeless shelter in Pontiac that is set up for people who are really sick. And so she spends a lot of time there and, and does some other work. homeless advocacy program is what they call it. And so that role is also one of those, you know, just have a passion for the determinants that get people in those situations and what you as a nurse can do to, to um, advocate for them and, and really um, make a difference in their lives too. Mm -hmm. I guess it's that advocacy. You want to advocate and you have a passion and then you want to find a place to do that. Right. I love listening to this because as I think about the trajectory that you described and the way that it shifted and changed with what was going on in your life and what your needs were and where you were living or when you were attending school. And then you think about, um, you know, if you have a passion for determinants of health, if you have a passion for global health, if you have a passion for, you know, keeping people out of the hospital, I mean, it just goes to show you, or at least it's showing me how many things we can do in nursing that are truly tailored. It feels tailored to us, right? Tailored to what drives us and what motivates us and makes us tick. And look, there's a job for it. You know, I absolutely I love hearing yeah. that because it really illustrates again what I continue to say is what feels like infinite opportunities. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's exciting. great. Well, yeah. Belinda, thank you so much for taking this time and spending this with us today. I um your journey was a really exciting one to listen to, and I'm definitely inspired by the passion that you have for healing, you know, individuals and families and communities and looking at things from, a, from that perspective. Um, and I'm just really grateful for you talking to us. You're so welcome and my pleasure to say the least. Um, yeah. Well, great. thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Night and Tales. 
As you do, we encourage you to consider the unique nature of each person's journey through this profession. The views shared on this podcast are those of an individual, not the academic institution that they graduated from, their employer, or the professional organization that they're active in. The stories of their career path and progression are not intended to suggest that there is a uniform approach to achieving similar accomplishments, but to open your mind to all that is available to you. Each journey in nursing is as unique as each individual that we serve. We hope you'll listen again next time.